Welcome everyone to another episode of Dardashe, the show where we interview amazing and inspiring Palestinians about their lives and the work that they do. Today I'm joined by Mohammed Al-Kurd, a poet, writer, activist, and the nation's Palestine correspondent. Mohammed, welcome. It's great to have you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. It's a pleasure to be here. Yeah, Mohammed, I wanted to ask you, um, I read the, the interview you recently did with Noura for The Nation. And what struck me was that, uh, you know, when you were talking, when she was asking you what it was like, you know, having settlers live in and have, have your home, you said, you know, it happens often to a lot of Palestinians, but what was unique is that there was a lot of media attention uh, and the press were always around. What was that like for you as a kid? I can't imagine that that was easy growing up like that. I mean, it was a free media training. <laughs> no, I mean, yeah, there's there's a lot to be said about the invasion of privacy. Um, there's a lot to be said about, um, you know, being used as, um, you know, uh, uh, the environment from which journalists and activists pull their analysis and frameworks from. And this is not just about my house or my experience as a child growing up in um, a household that became a media hub, but this is largely um, reflected in the experience of Palestinians in in under military occupation, under colonization. We are often, um, you know, the raw material from which um, journalists and human rights organizations extract their analysis from, and we are exploited in that sense. But we're not we're not often offered the, the authority to narrate, the authority to analyze, the authority to, flame our, to frame our own things. So for me, it was kind of an uphill battle to be on the other side of the lens, but also make um, the articulation myself. Yeah, and when did, when did you become conscious of that? I mean, I'm sure as an 11 year old, you're like, this is weird, but at some point, this is also kind of screwed up. I mean, I think the the things about being raised by my mother, by my grandmother, and my aunt is by is by is means that I was raised by people who kind of saw through the nonsense and kind of were cynical or um, um, skeptical about the media presence and about the the presence of diplomats and um, hearing their you know remarks or um, slight comments here and there has helped me also shape um, my my idea regarding everything and also think about it a little bit more critically. So thank, I, I give credit to the women in my life for that. So Mohammed, this is probably why it's very important that, you know, your, your position with the nation as uh, its Palestine correspondent is so critical because you get to be the author, the voice, the narrator, then the recipient of, of the coverage, right? Yes. Yes. And I think I am, Yanni, if I'm allowed to be, a little bit arrogant. I think I am well suited to be the Palestine correspondent for the nation, but I think the nation is just one magazine mm. in a realm of hundreds of magazines that write obsessively about Palestinians without including their voice. So I think the, the nation has taken one good step and all of the other magazines must follow suit. I don't think it's, it's not something that I wish for or hope for. It's that it's, it's, it's what should happen. We need more Palestinians articulating and archiving and historicizing Palestinian history and Palestinian current affairs, um, or otherwise we're going to be crushed um, by other people's articulations for us, as we have been, right? All of this misinformation and disinformation that's been spread across the stretch of decades has led to so much smearing, so much dehumanization of the Palestinians. And this can be in part um, 
remedied by placing Palestinians in position of authority. And I say in positions of authority rather than saying uh, hiring Palestinians, because it's not enough to just tokenize a Palestinian and put them you know, on a podium and tell them, go, I'll give you talking points and you just can say them, no, you should seek out Palestinians um, who can make out the clear, sharp-witted analysis and can write it themselves in theirs. I can count, Kenny, on my, I, I don't have enough fingers to count the many Palestinian writers and journalists that I know can do this job really well, particularly in Gaza and the West Bank and Jerusalem and Haifa all over. Yeah, I think, as, as you said, there's giving a Palestinian uh, platform, but also giving them the space to, to write and the freedom to write. Because what a lot of people don't know is that a lot of decisions come from editorial boards that have a very strict uh, approach or, or uh, you know, uh, line on, on covering Palestine. And so, you know, I appreciate when, whenever you call out a media outlet for, for their bullshit. And so I want to... I want you to tell an audience who might not know how the media covers Palestine. You know, what are the things that you personally experience have seen in terms of stereotypes, misinformation, disinformation, the way the media gets it wrong so often? Yeah, I mean, um, first of all, I'm glad we could say bullshit. I didn't realize. Um, well, it's, yeah. yeah. <laughs> um, <laughs> Nothing beyond that. <laughs> um, yeah, I mean, like, let's look at the, let's look at material facts first, right? You have a few months ago, you had DW, which is a German broadcasting company. Um, some some person leaked an internal memo in which they were instructing their employees not to mention apartheid, not to mention settler colonialism, um, not to dwell on occupation, not to say illegal regarding settlements, et cetera, et cetera. You have the owner of Politico saying that if you want to work for him, you have to support Israel, which is absolute indoctrination and insane. And then you have like these kind of leaked memos, internal memos every now and then from, New York, from the New York Times. Beyond this, you also have the New York Times publishing op-eds by um, you know, Israeli officials that are calling for a Palestinian national suicide. This happened a few years ago. Um, and you're having, when you look at any kind of um, framework of, uh, uh, you know, portrayal of Palestinians in American media, particularly in Western media, even the ones that are so-called friendly, you see that Palestinians are just there to to give two sentences, and most of the heavy lifting, the, the analyzing, the framing, the saying, the conclusions are made by Israelis, are made by Americans, are made by diplomats, and this is certainly true for um, the New York Times, not to mention the incredible, um, you know, lack of power analysis. You have them, you know, equating Palestinians throwing stones or Palestinians throwing rockets to a nuclear state, you know, to the only nuclear state in the Middle East. You have this false equation. And oftentimes when we call them out on it, they say they are just being objective. They are just being neutral. But if you are being objective, if you're reporting the situation on the ground objectively, you would objectively report the power imbalances, you objectively report the power, the power abuses, you would objectively report the military occupation, which is internationally recognized, by the way. So a lot of this is just lazy journalism. Mm -hmm. um, when I first moved into this country, I thought, you know, uh, American lawmakers, and American journalists has has have have it out for us, and this is certainly true. There's many um, Zionists 
that are, you know, taking evil steps against the Palestinian people. But in many cases, also, people are just ignorant. Mm. And you they need to be hiring people that know what the hell they're talking about instead of just blabbering about nothing. Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. So I wanted to ask you, um, why, do, why, do, why does narrative and story matter? That's number one. And number two, what stories and narrative do you want to tell as part of your gig at the nation? Yeah, I mean, I, I think narrative matters to a certain extent, right? Like, I'm not going to write a short story and then gonna and go and then go to Colombia and read the short story at Colombia checkpoint and then hope the checkpoint is gonna collapse. That's not going to happen. When we talk about the power of language, we really talk about the accumulative power of opinion change, right? When when I am narrativizing my own story, I am contributing to a global conversation that will ultimately contribute to policy change, that will contribute to behavior and attitude change in people. And that is why narrative matters. Um, we have been living such a clearly materially asymmetrical reality of oppression by Israelis, and yet the way it is narrativized in the media makes us feel crazy about mm. the, it, it does not reflect or echo the reality that we so materially feel every single day. And that's why a narrative matters because not only are we um, being subjugated by cement barriers, by different legal statuses, by land theft, by settler violence, we're also being subjugated by a narrative that lies to history and the battle now isn't just on the ground, but it's how we are going to be remembered in history and how Palestine is going to be talked about in history. This is a fight against erasure, ultimately. Um, the stories I want to tell at the, at the nation, يعني, I want to tell a range of stories. One story that I've had in particular was, you know, me and my friend sneaking into a beach where no Palestinians were allowed and seeing all of these American Zionists, you know, play yoga on the beach or do yoga on the beach and like ride in parachutes. And then the next town over is just a shabby um, town with no resources, no access to uh, the beach, et cetera, et cetera. These are the kind of stories I want to write, but unfortunately, you know, Palestine is relentless. The occupation is relentless. So a lot of what we write about is going to be tied to the news cycle, going to be tied to this crises, um, to this urgencies that we face every single day. I also would love to write about um, Gaza mm. because I feel like it's so underrepresented, but I also would love, I would rather um, us amplify and highlight and empower voices that come from Gaza directly, that have all the authority to narrate their own reality that is so unique from my reality as a Jerusalemite. Totally, totally. I want to I want to talk to you more about writing and, and your book, but I want to ask about uh, the unity intifada. I mean, you know, uh, we're roughly part of the same generation, you and I, and uh, I'm from the West Bank, but I was, you know, I went to school in, in Jerusalem, and I where did you go? Huh? Where did you go? I went to a school in Beit Hanina, into to an evangelical Christian school called the Jerusalem School. Oh, one nice! Of, I know, one, I know. One of the biggest regrets. Yeah. Um, I wanted to ask you about, I think for me, it inspired me because one of the biggest challenges I feel we face is our fragmentation and segregation, geo geographically, socially, politically. And it gave us a sense of unity that was driven by the youth, by young people. Um, it's a big question, but where do, you, where do you hope it goes next? Where do you envision, where do you desire for for kind of our generation to take things next in terms of 
taking on fragmentation, but building something that's sustainable, um, that can confront settler colonialism and apartheid? I mean, you know, this fragmentation is incredibly unique. Um, one of my closest friends, his name is Rabia Ghbariya. He's a lawyer at Adala Legal Center, and he's a doctoral student at um, Harvard Law School. He was born in um, Haifa, and I was born in Jerusalem. That's an hour and a half away from one another. And our experience at life has, so, has been so dramatically desperate from one another. And that's only an hour and a half away, no checkpoints, no nothing. Now, compare, ta compare that to my relationship or the experience I would contrast with your experience as a person from the West Bank and compare that with your experience against the experience of somebody in the Gaza Strip. We are living through these super incredibly unique, um, you know, legal statuses across these fabricated geographies and cement barriers that they have placed on, on our land. But although it is unique, it's not unique in the historical context because divide and conquer is just like a traditionally classic um, colonial tactic. And I think what's next for us is to kind of blur the lines a little bit around that legal fragmentation, that social fragmentation. And I think this is what the unity uprising did last summer is kind of um, create or you know, use an articulation that has existed long time, the, the framework of settler colonialism, and use it to infiltrate the mainstream. And this settler colonialism was this umbrella that combined all of the practices and policies of displacement of fragmentation that Palestinians face under one another. So now I think, I mean, this nuance is by design, and we spent so much time trying to explain it. And I think my mission is to try to blur the lines a little bit around this nuance to try to like bridge the gaps between um, Palestinians rather than emphasize the differences. Because at the end of the day, yes, the realities are very, very different, but the aggressor is one and our fight is one as well. Yeah, for sure. I, I agree. And I, you know, I, I, I fully felt the lines, I think, growing up between Jericho and Jerusalem, but also when I lived abroad seeing Palestinian refugees in diaspora for the first time, meeting a Gazan in the US for the first time, I think it kind of was surreal. Um, can I ask you, do you, do you, do you crave a, a political system and, and political representation and being able to choose that uh, as something that I think we're missing? You know, what the PLO was in, in a different form in the 70s and 80s or not something you you really think about or, or put much emphasis on? Yani, I, this is kind of a tricky question to answer and I don't want to upset anybody. But yeah, I think we need, we definitely need collective power, um, collective political power. So much of our experience has been highlighting the asymmetry and has been highlighting the victimization. And you realize, you know, the people whose hands are on the trigger or fingers are on the trigger, the people whose hands are on the bomb button do not have a conscience. Mm. So no matter how many days I spend showing them pictures of killed children, no matter how many poems I write about, you know, grieving mother, they're not gonna emotionally wake up and decide to stop the crimes because they know and they are doing it in spite of the human cost, right? 
So I do think like our project should also focus on building strategy, should focus on beyond, on should focus on going and organizing beyond the mobilization for crisis, but rather building like structural entities that can be there regardless of crisis, regardless of urgency, even though that there's constant urgency all the time. Um, and I do think we need that political power. Do I know how to establish it? No. Um, but I'm learning and I'm collaborating with people. But also, you know, for me, it's a challenge because I also can't, I, I can't, I don't, I don't limit my imagination for a, a liberated Palestine within the context of a state. For me, liberation across the board globally does not mean it has to come in the form of a state, let alone a nation state. So these are things that are, you know, worth pondering about, and these are things that are worth having conversations about, and these are conversations that are often, you know, neglected or we we shy away from talking about them. But it's important to brainstorm for our future for our futures when we can. Absolutely, I couldn't agree more. I think for me, what's missing is a vehicle towards liberation, something that can bring us and connect us. Right, the fragmentation, blurring the lines, is one step. The next step is being able to create the space that we can come together, as you said, strategize and drive us towards that liberation in whatever configuration it is. Absolutely, absolutely. Yeah, and so oh, that's awesome. I think I think it's definitely something we should all be working towards. Um, why why did you choose writing as a medium to express yourself? Um, because there's not much. I mean, I could say like, oh, it's my calling. It's a <laughs> But there's any practically there's not much writing about Palestine that comes from Palestinians. Mm. Um, I mean, there is, there is, don't get me wrong. Of course, there's like many, many Palestinians that are working tirelessly and writing tirelessly. Um, most of that writing is like scholarly work. There's not much writing in English that comes from Palestinians that is like rooted in the language of the Palestinian street. And I just wanted to join that tradition that was unabashed, unapologetic, talks about resistance boldly without shying away from it. Um, and uh, by no means am I like trailblazing anything. I'm just joining an already existent um, tradition because again, this is a battle of war. It's a battle of dispossession. It's a battle for refugees. It's a battle for prisoners and it's a battle of narration and somebody's got to do the narrating. Yeah. Yeah, totally. So tell us, tell us about your book, Rivka. Well, I heard it's God for starters. <laughs> <laughs> Um, my book, my book is a, just a collection of poems um, I wrote, uh, you know, a few years ago, um, and it's finally getting published. Some of the poems are new in it, but you know, I, it's been like in the pipeline with Haymarket for a few years. And I'm very grateful to have it published. Um, it's named Rifqa after my grandmother, and because Rifqa means like journey or to accompany mm -hmm. someone on a journey, and you know, it, the the book really primarily. Leave, primarily focuses on ethnic cleansing, focuses on dispossession as, you know, the, the prime colonial tool that's used against us. And it just talks about ethnic, ethnic cleansing and forced dispossession in different ways from different perspectives. But it also, you know, for me in writing that book, I had, you know, I had to pivot. I went from like writing about our victimizations or like writing about you know, limbless Palestinians or Palestinians who have been maimed and like exclaiming, like, can you not see that they're human to like finally realizing or reaching this epiphany that like, of course they realize they're human and they don't give a shit. And so this is now the book is kind of a rejection of this 
um, old tactic of humanization that we have used. And it's more like uh, a kicking your feet up on the table saying, this is what it is. And this is what I'm working for, regardless of how you receive it. Yeah. Interesting. So you, you feel like this, we've been driven by the need to, to humanize Palestinians, to put us on equal footing. Of course. And, and so you think this is no longer the way forward. There needs to be saying, we, this is our land, we deserve to be here. This is our story. There's no need. I mean, when you think about it, when you yeah. think about it, it's, it's kind of insane, right? Like it, it, in my own experience, I, 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 was, I was thinking you know, a few months ago, I am on CNN today because my house is about to get, my whole community of refugees is about to get displaced by a billionaire backed settler organization that is based in different foreign in foreign countries that is backed by the Israeli military and the police and that is in complete collusion with the Israeli judicial system that is asymmetrical that was built by settlers and and formed by settlers and is there on top of Palestinians homes rubbles to displace Palestinians right and yet I go on CNN and I'm interrogated about my own hostility I'm interrogated on whether or not I believe in violence. It is completely insane. And yet when Israeli diplomats or officials or politicians go on American television, they are met with flowers and smiles. Nobody's interrogating them. And that is insane, right? Because when you look at the reality, when you look on the ground, it's so clear. It's so clear. There's, there's an aggressor, there's an occupier, and there's a person being occupied. And for us to like go into these equations, um, and like go with these disclaimers saying we are actually human and we actually love um, cooking and we do this and we do that and blah, blah, blah. And we, and I love this kind of music and please believe that I'm human. It's insane because I am, I'm not the person, I'm not the defendant here. I'm not the person that should be interrogated. So for me, that was like the clear cut answer. Um, there is no, there is no need, there is no way I'm going to continue to dehumanize myself um, by way of trying to humanize myself, because I am not, I am the victim in this, in the, te technically, I am the victim in this position, and it's insane that I'm being interrogated. And yeah. that's why I think the humanization framework does not work anymore, because it, because it relies um, implicitly um, on the notion that the racism of others is our problem. But if another person does not see me as human, that is his racism, that is his problem. It's not mine to fix. Somebody else's indoctrination is not my issue. Yeah, no, I hear you. And so when you say, you know, you arrived at a place where you put your feet up on the table and that's, that's the approach. What is that? What does that mean? What does that entail? Just so people fully understand it more and it's something that they can relate to, right? Yeah, I mean, like, you know, we, we, we say from the river to the sea and then, you know, um, the world collapses and uh, uh, apparently saying that is a, a call for genocide and blah, blah, blah. And then we're like running around the room, like trying to explain ourselves. And then you have this other option of, you know, believing in your own dignity, believing in your own self-worth and saying no from the river to the sea. I don't have time to explain to you if, if you are panicked because of your own siege mentality, then that's your problem. Um, Right, like we have, we have Israelis who are literally placing us under siege, placing us under an open air prison, and yet they're able to perpetuate this myth that they're doing everything in self-defense, that they're in this bad neighborhood, which is completely racist, by the way. They're in this bad neighborhood and everybody's an aggressor and they're constantly facing the risk of annihilation while simultaneously 
slowly incrementally annihilating another people. It's insane. And when you kick up your feet up on the table, I'm not saying that's going to solve the problem, but it's going to, to help me feel a little bit more dignified. And that's, mm. that's an attitude I got from my grandmother. Um, who was so assertive in her own self-dignity, who was so assertive in her own rejection to this um, notion that she had to justify her humanity to other people or, to, or that she had to be like a prop for gazing eyes. This is not something I accept upon myself. Um, and particularly, I mean, if I'm gonna delve into this a little bit more, particularly, I think this is an issue regarding Palestinian children. Mm. Uh, I, I know this firsthand, but I, c I could only imagine how it's difficult for other people. Like when you fly Palestinian children to DC to meet with American politicians, because American politicians would not meet with you, right? Or me, because they're scared of, you know, sharp criticism. So they meet with children for a quarter opportunity that will ultimately traumatize our children. Why are we doing this? Th this these are the questions I want to be asking. And by no means is this an indictment of the Palestinian movement or like a critique that is that seeks to punish the Palestinian movements. We have little to nothing and we did what we can with what we had. And now it's time to reevaluate and continue the work. A lot of what's happened in the past summer is an accumulation of the hard work of many, many, many organizers and organizations and movements. And it's good to always take a pause every now and then and stop and evaluate and look forward. Totally. Uh, very interesting, I think, perspective. And uh, for those who want, they can find it in your book, right? Yeah. If where you can they, you like where poetry. Can don't get it if you don't like poetry. <laughs> they should get it anyways. Uh, you know, where where can they where can they find the book? Where can people get it and buy it? If you're in the United States, you can find it in any bookstore. And if you're online, you could um, if you're outside of the United States, you could buy it at the Haymarket website. Okay. Stuff. Cool. Well, Muhammad, thank you so much for your time. It was a pleasure to chat and to have you on Dardashe and uh, keep doing what you're doing, man. Thank you and thank you for Dardashe. It was a pleasure to speak with you and I love watching this podcast.